From McMaster University, I'm John Preston, and you're listening to Big Ideas for a Changing World. In this series, you'll hear from researchers from McMaster's Faculty of Engineering and beyond who are creating innovative solutions to our world's greatest challenges. I have a chance to see these solutions up close as the faculty's Associate Dean for Research and External Relations. Today, we're talking all about the eyes and how innovative biomaterials can improve drug delivery and treating eye diseases. You'll hear from Heather Sheardown, Professor and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Ophthalmic Biomaterials, and Fran Lasowski, a recent PhD graduate in Chemical Engineering who's now the Executive Director for the C2020 Innovation Hub. They'll discuss their research and how the technology involved applies to preventing COVID-19. With that, a warm welcome to Heather and Fran on Big Ideas for a Changing World. So let's begin by giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself and give a brief background of your career. Heather, let's start with you. So I'm a professor in chemical engineering and I've been interested in how to use engineering methods to treat the body and specifically the eye for the past 30 years. So I run a large and vibrant research group that focuses on developing materials, which are really engineered components for treating diseases of the eye. Fran, can you tell us a bit mm -hmm. about yourself? Absolutely. I'm a chemical engineer who graduated from McMaster and stuck around to complete my PhD in Heather's lab after getting very interested in how these engineered materials can improve patient care and improve the outcome of diseases, particularly in the eye. I worked with Heather to translate some of these materials towards the clinic, which resulted us in actually having a spin-out company that I'm now also the CEO for. Heather, congratulations to you for receiving a Minister's Award of Excellence from the Ontario Ministry of Colleges and Universities. Tell us more about the Sheardown Lab. What are the projects that are underway these days? So most of the work in our lab is focused on delivering drugs to different parts of the eye. So if you put an eye drop into the eye, for example, you lose 95% of it in the first five minutes. It goes down your cheek, it drains into your nose. Uh, sometimes when you put an eye drop in your eye, sometimes you feel like you can taste it. Well, you actually can. So what we're trying to do is develop better methods of delivering drugs to the eye. So in the front of the eye, we're looking at eye drops as a platform because people are not happy with, but are used to eye drops and are willing to put eye drops into their eyes. But what we're trying to do is make them better, make them last longer, make it so that you have to put them in uh, less frequently. In the back of the eye, typical treatments are monthly or every six week injections directly into the globe. So when I was a kid, we used to talk about a needle in the eye. Well, actually, that is what's happening right now. Now, it's not pleasant. It uh, involves regular visits to the doctor, so it's also very onerous for the physician. Although it allows the doctor to monitor the patient's progress, uh, it's suboptimal. So what we're trying to do is develop different methods of putting drugs into the back of the eye, but that lasts longer than a month. So if we could get six months or a year worth of drug that would be perfect. A patient would only have to come in once every six months or once every year. Much better for the doctor, much better for the patient, and also much better for the disease because we would be controlling the disease much more. We'd be delivering a steady amount of drug to keep the disease at bay, essentially. Fran, you've been intensely involved in the commercialization of breakthroughs from the Sheardown Lab. Can you give us a sense of the scale 
of the problem associated with eye disease in Canada? And when you speak to other researchers in the field, where are the gaps in the available technology? So over one and a half million Canadians currently suffer from some sort of vision loss and over five and a half million more have an eye disease that could cause vision loss in the future. So it's clearly a very broad problem across Canada. When we speak with physicians and ophthalmologists in the field, what we find is there's gaps in the current available treatment. Some diseases actually have really good therapeutics, but there's a lot of concerns around how the therapeutics are given to the patients. So as an example, one very prevalent disease in Canada is glaucoma. Glaucoma is a painless condition that causes patients to lose their peripheral vision. So it's not always obvious even that it's progressing. And the treatment for this is eye drops once a day. And so anyone who's used eye drops can imagine that they can be difficult to remember, they might be difficult to put in, or they could be painful. And so patients often have a lag in their treatment because they're not using their medication properly. So one of the things that we're looking to do in order to fill this gap is to try to create a better eye drop. So we're trying to exploit the biology of the eye and the tears to create an eye drop that could last longer. And in the case of glaucoma, we're looking at taking something that would normally be dosed once per day and dosing it instead once per week. Another example is an age-related macular degeneration, which causes patients to lose their central vision. And this is, again, common in elderly patients. And unfortunately, with vision loss, it's not just the loss of eyesight that causes a problem. There's many other comorbidities such as depression and increased likelihood for falls. So it really affects their quality of life. In order to preserve the vision for patients with age-related macular degeneration, they require injections up to once a month. So you can imagine that that's incredibly unpleasant for the patients, as well as it's a large drain on resources for both the doctors and for the caregivers of these elderly patients. In order to try to help this, We've been looking at using engineered materials that we could inject with the drugs that would allow them to stay for up to six months. So really reducing that treatment burden for both patients and the physicians. Heather, with the onset of COVID-19, your team quickly determined that your research that focuses on ophthalmic biomaterials for drug delivery could be useful in the prevention of COVID-19. Can you tell us more about this? So we had a drug delivery system that is based on adhesion to the mucus layer of the front of the eye. And it's shown really great longevity on the front of the eye. We can put it on and we know that it lasts for at least four days. And in some cases, we can take that out to seven days. So we looked at that and we looked at the composition of the respiratory system, the nasal passages, the lung, and found that there's also a significant mucin component there as well. So we thought, why not look at the potential of our mucoadhesive system to deliver drugs to the nasal passages and to the lung in order to either uh, mitigate um, COVID-19, so to stop it before it actually gained traction in the body, or to treat it once it had gained traction, so in the lung versus in the nasal passages. And we worked with one of our partners 
who was also interested in pivoting their work, one of their drugs, to develop some proposals in order to pair our micelle system with their drugs and some of the other drugs that were coming out. So we looked, for example, at HCQ when it was initially looking like it was giving favorable results, dexamethasone and other things in order to treat and to mitigate COVID-19 in patients. Fran, working with Heather, you've been successful in obtaining three peer-reviewed grants targeting COVID-19. Can you tell us about what's next in this area of research? So we're completing the preclinical work associated with these new drugs that would be used for COVID-19 in our drug delivery systems. And because of the urgency of the situation, we're looking at some accelerated timelines with these industrial partners who have supported us through these grants. We're hoping to complete that preclinical work early next year, which would allow us to move into clinical work, first in human trials with these micelles, along with that company's support, hopefully by the end of next year, if the preclinical work uh, looks promising. With $4 million in funding from the Ontario Research Fund, the Sheardown team has established the C2020 Innovation Hub. Fran. What is the overarching mission behind C2020? So prior to C2020, Heather had successfully received a large grant that was focused on developing ocular technologies. And I was actually trained through that grant while doing my PhD. And a lot of really interesting research came out of it. But I think what was very clear was it was all too early to get the attention of industry. And there were people similar to myself who really were motivated by trying to see these technologies and see these improvements, not just be a theoretical improvement. We really wanted to see them try to move into patients and improve patient care. And in order to do that, we knew we had to do a little bit more work than what would be the traditional life cycle of a project. So the mission behind C2020 was to really take these technologies and move them forward so that they would be of interest to investors and clinical partners to really drive them into patients' hands, to really move them into clinic and see them improve patient lives. We've had to prioritize which technologies look the most promising. We've assembled a great team that's multidisciplinary to target the different aspects. We've had to look at manufacturing. We've had to look at preclinical studies to make sure that they're safe and efficacious. So we've really been able to create these projects that are moving these technologies forward and presenting at different types of conferences than we have before to get industry interested and have them pick it up to continue on to move them to patients. One of the things I've realized is just how big the gap is between what happens in academia and what happens on an industrial basis. We went naively into C2020 thinking we would do a few experiments, we would garner support, companies would come to us with money, uh, and we, we've realized and we've learned that it's a lot more than that. So we've generated some amazing data 
but we've really learned a lot in terms of just how much more goes into something that actually gets into a patient than we ever would have thought of before. Uh, and that's been incredible. We've had amazing partners. We've had um, some guidance from some really smart advisors who have stuck with us. Uh, but if you had told me five years ago that we wouldn't be able to have something in a patient in five years, I would have laughed. But now I realize just how long it takes to move something from the lab bench to a patient and just how much is involved. And I understand the value of all of that. I understand why it's done. So I have a new appreciation for what is involved with commercialization of, of technologies in the medical field. Yeah, I think just building on that, the runway is so long and there are very lofty goals. So I think that having partners and having funders who recognize that there's a large payoff at the end um, for patients, uh, for the economy, for the healthcare system, that if they can stick with us, there's all these benefits, but it's not something that's going to happen in a year or two, which again, I think is somewhat unique to the medical and the biomedical field. So can you tell, Heather, can you tell us about the process of bringing a laboratory result all the way from the lab to a patient? What kind of steps are involved to the runway of commercialization? So typically you have a great PhD student who has a really good idea and you know, in my lab, they make a material and they do some tests with some cells to make sure that the material is okay in a cellular environment. And then we've been really lucky and we've moved into doing testing in animals, which I think was absolutely critical to us being successful in the field. We recognize the need for demonstrating safety in animals before it moves into a human. And we do very preliminary tests in this area. We've been trying to figure out what happens to our drugs, for example. So if we inject something into the back of the eye, how much drug is there after a day, a week, a month, and where does it go? So does it stay in the eye? Does it go to the bloodstream? Does it go to the kidney? Does it go to the liver? So all questions that have to be answered before we would even think about putting it into a patient. And in parallel to this, we're talking to partners, we're looking at applications, we're seeing what drugs people might be interested in. So typically in the lab, we're using an off-the-shelf drug that's been off-patent forever because it's cheap enough that we can afford to purchase it. But the drugs that are really interesting to companies are the drugs that are, are in development right now. And they're looking for ways of delivering those drugs. So we're talking to companies about our, our platforms and our ways of delivering things with a recognition that we're going to have to change stuff if we put in a different drug. And it's, it's a much longer process than we ever would have thought. So the, you know, the materials development can take four or five years. Those animal studies, again, can take four or five years, depending on what, what hiccups happen, what things go wrong, how well the study's designed. We did, we did one study and we missed a tissue. We should, have, we should have looked at a tissue that we didn't take and it was a critical tissue and it was just, it was a rookie mistake. We won't make it again, but we've learned. So it's just a much longer runway than 
would be the case for just developing some kind of a new polymer with an application? I think one of the other things that's challenging with this space is, as Heather mentioned, every time we want to pick a new drug, even though it's a platform technology, there's still a lot of optimization that has to go into that new therapeutic. You have to optimize how much drug you can put in. You have to make sure that the amount of drug that's going to the relevant tissues is the right amount, that it's a therapeutic level. And in addition to this, the companies are concerned about all of the post-commercial aspects, such as how is it reimbursed? Is someone going to pay a premium for this product to cover the costs of this development? And those are all considerations that on the research side, we've never really had to consider. But as we've moved forward trying to actually figure out how do we get something into clinic, these are questions that have started to come up that we now have to think about at least a little bit at these early stages to try to minimize rework on the back end to sort of try to shorten up that runway, if you will. We've had some marvelous partners and have worked with some great partners, both from in Canada and uh, outside of Canada. So a couple in particular, one partner in Toronto, Manon Research, was really key in helping us pivot our work from the eye to looking at COVID-19. They were very supportive. They were looking at drugs from their portfolio and they were really interested in seeing if we could deliver those drugs. So that was a win-win a, a for both of us and it was just a great partnership that allowed us to leverage a little bit of funding from them and leverage some of their access to some of their drugs to enable us to move forward. Another partnership that we've had that has been ongoing for probably the last five years is with a company that was spun out of the University of Toronto since spun out an ophthalmic division, which we've been really key in being able to test their platform, providing them with the preclinical data that has enabled them to move forward. And they've just secured a significant amount of funding to allow them to move their platform into clinical trials. So, you know, we're really pleased that we've been such a big part of this and we're continuing to work with them on their next generation of products. So it's, it's really exciting to see something that you've been working on and, and you've had a hand in actually move forward and be able to be in the clinic and potentially treat patients. Okay, the next question, I think I'll start with Heather and then move to Fran to comment. What advice would you have for a student who's interested in pursuing a career in biomaterials research? Students have, they have so much to offer. They have enthusiasm and excitement, really all about finding a lab that might work with you um, and might uh, be keen on taking your enthusiasm and moving it forward. I've been absolutely thrilled with uh, the graduate students that I've been able to supervise. And I would suggest just talk to people, talk to graduate students, talk to supervisors, spend some time in the lab, spend some time working with people, a little bit hard in COVID-19 times, unfortunately, but take advantage of things like the STEM outreach, things that we've been doing and, and find people who seem to be doing things that are interesting to you and talk to them and get a feeling for what is going on out there because it's really broader than you could ever possibly imagine. Fran, you're right in the middle of this transition from, mm -hmm. from your education into a career in research. 
Do you have any comments to make uh, to amplify or to expand upon what Heather's told us? I think Heather's absolutely correct. It's really important to find people to speak to, to understand what they do. And I think biomaterials is such an interesting space because there's so many aspects of it. As I mentioned, I come out of chemical engineering, but there's people who would be just as at home from mechanical engineering, from electrical engineering. And because of this multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary field, there's connections to AI, there's connections to manufacturing. So there's just such a broad fan in this space that it's really a matter of finding the niche that fits for what you want to do. And I think one of the really interesting things is you can choose to go a route where you focus on diseases. Like we come out of a lab that's focused on the eye, but again, have made a little bit of a pivot into the lung and still have a real strong affinity for the eye where we want to always kind of come back to, but the first love, if you will, or you can go and you can look at the materials and you can go really deep into the materials and learn about the differences between the applications and you just get to meet so many interesting people and the applications are so broad that there really is something for everybody if you want to be in this space and it's just a matter of exploring to find out where your fit is best. So one of the things that I've learned is that engineers have so much to offer to the field of medicine. I think that we undervalue ourselves in terms of what we're able to give to the medical field. But I've learned over the years that as you talk to doctors, they come to me with these crazy ideas and it's us, it's the engineers who are able to put them into practice. And, and I think that's one of the really exciting parts about working in biomedical research and, and biomaterials in particular. It really is a very applied area where you can see the impact of the outcomes of your research in a very tangible way. I think it's, it's, it's always struck me as I look at the biomedical researchers at McMaster, they've got a marvelous chance to see their, their outcomes in action. I think of us a little bit like a wand, that the physicians are able to articulate a problem and they say, I wish I had something that could do this. And you're sort of like their magic wand that's able to deliver on that wish with the, here's a solution that could fit for your problem. You've had a big transition. Fran described it as pivoting away from the eye towards the lung uh, due to this, the need and opportunity that has arisen with COVID-19. What's the biggest takeaway you'll remember from these last six months? And how do you think it's going to impact your research going forward? I've been absolutely floored by the team that I have working with me. They have been amazing. Um, we have, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were having weekly calls and they were really just brainstorming sessions, talking about different aspects of the material science and the biology and how could we use the materials that we have. And it, it was just amazing from a scientific perspective um, and also amazing from the perspective of we might actually be able to do something. So I think, you know, not selling ourselves short in terms of what we're able to do and how we're able to uh, make a difference uh, is really, really important because I think that a team that has been focused on the eye for the last 25 years can make 
a difference in an area that isn't ocular. And, and I think that that was something that uh, really surprised me uh, and, and something that I would not have thought of at the beginning of this whole pandemic. I think one of the things that struck me early on was how we could use our network to expand. We always knew that the my cells in this case could be used for a variety of applications, but we always just had it in there as a bit of a tagline because we were focused on the eye. And once we knew we wanted to explore them to try to help with COVID-19, we were able to use our network to get in touch with people who were specialists in the lungs, people who specialized in ear, nose, throat, and really understand what their problems were so that we could tailor our solution for this application. So I think having those connections and being able to use that network to really tailor the solution was something that I was surprised we could do in the time we did. It, we moved a lot faster than I would have previously said we were capable of doing. Heather, can you comment on the importance of programs like the Ontario Research Fund in advancing your type of research? So C2020, which was funded by the Ontario Research Fund, has been critical in moving our technologies forward. The Ontario Research Fund is one of the few grants that's really focused on commercialization of academic research. And it really is a win-win for the academics, for the government, for the province, because it has to lead to new jobs, creation of new companies, creation of new wealth in Ontario. And being able to recognize this and put together a program like the Ontario Research Fund has been really critical to us to moving this technology forward and allowing us to do the kinds of things that we've been doing. What we've discovered through the work with C2020 has been that these are complex problems and nuanced problems. So they really require the input from clinicians who are interfacing with the patients on a daily basis and from existing industry who understands the complexities around manufacturing these products, the regulatory path for these products, and combining those two stakeholders with the academic groups that allow us to tailor these academic projects towards a product that could have impact in the clinic by marrying all three of these stakeholder groups. I think it's been an interesting challenge for all of us involved in research dealing with COVID-19. Not only do we want to conduct our research, we also want to reach out to the community and try to help. Can you tell us about some of the things that have been coming out of the Sheardown Laboratory in terms of outreach to the community at this time? So early in the pandemic, Fran came up with the brilliant idea of garnering all of our graduate students, putting them together and having them do a weekly Facebook live session to provide science outreach to teachers, to brownies and girl guides and scout groups, to daycare centers. So they've done a whole host of different things. Fran and I were talking and I was, we were saying about, you know, the virus and, and what the virus looked like. And between that conversation and conversation between Fran and one of the postdocs, they came up with this podcast type venue that allowed a bunch of four-year-olds to essentially make viruses out of Play-Doh. So now 
these four-year-olds understand how a virus attaches to a cell, gets into a cell, puts its contents into the cell. Um, Fran's daughter can tell us more about COVID-19 than most adults. She understands it very well, and it's purely as a result of some of these STEM outreach things that, uh, that really were spearheaded by Fran and uh, the researchers in the group. Is there anything you'd like to add about the research, the process, or the impact of your work on communities? I think that biomaterials have huge potential. I think that the potential for delivering drugs over longer periods of time, but with more control, even though it's been around since the 70s, is only really being realized now. And I think that in different areas, it's being realized. So the, the very first drug delivery systems were actually in the eye and they were incredible failures. But there's now a number of different systems that are being commercialized that are actually having an impact. So a good idea sometimes takes a little while to get traction, but uh, eventually a good idea does get traction and is able to move forward. I really like working in the eye because everyone understands the importance of vision. I never have to convince somebody that what we're doing is important because people value sight. No one wants to go blind. So I think people understand that impact and being able to move things along and get them beyond just a paper, get some safety data, do the animal trials that are necessary and really start pushing things towards clinic is going to be how these technologies make an impact. Papers are great, but I know increasingly a lot of grad students, myself included, are motivated by that desire to really help patients and see that outcome. So I think that it's a really exciting space to be in. And we're certainly excited to keep continuing this work because we've learned a lot over the last five years of doing this. And I think it's made us very efficient now and we're eager to keep, keep it up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Ideas for a Changing World. This show was produced by Jesse Park and edited by Dan Kim of the Faculty of Engineering. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or let us know your thoughts on social media. We're at McMaster Engineering on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you next time.